What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Legendary Habitat Podcast. This is your host, Colin Koskinen. I am really excited for this week's episode. I am bringing on uh, Al Tomechko. He is from uh, Ohio, and he's just a uh, great guy that has a lot of knowledge in soil health and no-till and has done a lot of different um, things in the no-till world as far as food plots and cover crops. And uh, so I'm really excited to dive into a couple questions I've got for him, and uh, we are going to give him a call and uh, start this podcast off. Yes, I'm here. Alrighty, we are live. Thanks a lot for coming on here. I'm excited oh, to. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. I uh, been following you for a little while. I know we kind of. Uh, message back and forth a little bit on Facebook and I said this guy knows his soil so I got to get him on here and, and talk to him about some stuff so yeah thank you thank yeah. you yeah well I, I definitely have uh, been playing around with soil for a long time and um, have read as much as I can with with you know uh, having a full-time job and, and a wife and, and a baby you know time to read and, and, and trial things is, is a little bit limited but uh, sure. I've learned from a lot of really really smart people and uh, I think it's it's important to always make sure that people realize that uh, that's the best way to learn you know talk to farmers and read books and, and do all those other things because it really leads to uh, to a, a lot of good resources to you know learning absolutely yeah um, so before we dive in why don't you give a little bit of background about yourself kind of how you got into uh, soil and kind of how your passion and knowledge kind of started growing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, well, I grew up in uh, in, in northeastern Ohio, and uh, at that time, uh, a relatively small town where you know, I remember going to church uh, with my grandma, and we'd go to seven thirty mass on Sunday mornings, and uh, <clears throat> she would always point out to me, "Oh, there's the farmers," you know. And um, I always really looked up to the farmers, you know, and. and uh, Unfortunately, our community, it's a great community, but uh, it has grown substantially uh, now. There's not too many farms left, like a lot of areas of, of the Midwest. But mm -hmm. uh, it was a great place to grow up and um, had a family that, that had grown up in, uh, well, uh, my, my grandfather had been a big influence on my life and was actually a coal miner from uh, western Pennsylvania in uh, the Appalachian region. And, um, had a lot of family from, from that area and wow. uh, that brings a strong, um, you know, gardening and, and kind of self-preservation. I mean, canning and gardening and, mm -hmm. and all that type of thing um, that, you know, they brought with them when they, then they did move to Ohio. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, growing up with uh, my grandpa and, and doing gardening and things like that. And I just was always intrigued by the soil, you know, sure. old timers used to always say things like, um, <clears throat> Oh, to, you know, homegrown tomato tastes better than rest, or you know, things like that. You always have heard those sayings. And, right. Um, as I got older, I used to say, well, why? You know, because yeah. it does. It does taste better. Is it just because it's fresher? Like, there's something happening. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I deer hunted my whole life, and uh, 
you know, we, we owned a, a property for about, I don't know, I think we're at like 12 years now, 13 years, something in that ballpark. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's in Eastern Ohio. It's, uh, in the foothills of Appalachia, you know, it's rougher soils. And, uh, first thing I wanted to do was put in food plots and, sure. um, you know, we started doing food plots and, and, uh, we had some really good habitat around the farm there. And, um, you know, then I started working on some TSI projects and things like that. But uh, one of the things that I just continued to want to do in our area, it's, it's a lot of uh, big woods deer, you know, really rugged terrain. <clears throat> There's like essentially no agriculture within miles and miles um, of, of our place. So uh, your, your deer are primarily going to be either eating in hay fields or eating uh, natural woody browse. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just what's what's around. So, um, getting age on deer in that area is not really that big of an issue. I mean, um, I killed a buck this year. That I sent his teeth in. I mean, he was five and a half years old, um, and he had a you know nice rack, but uh, definitely not what you would picture as a five and a half year old from you know from social media in, in Ohio. But, sure, sure. Um, well, congratulations you know, on that. Thank you. Yeah, he was he was a pretty nice deer, and I had a lot of history with him. But uh, you know, it's it was always intriguing to me to say, okay, how can I continue to you know add more food? And I just was really interested in soil tests. Like I remember people saying, ah, like in the very beginning, ah, just put this much fertilizer down, or this much mm-hmm. lime. You know, then I learned about soil tests, and honestly, kind of it was just it's like the fastest. 10 at least decade of my life of really being interested in it is um just looking at all of this different information whether it be the old qdma forums or and saying man there's so much out there that's just contradictory of yeah. each other you know yeah. no till half to till moldboard plow you know you got to break up compaction that way always use cover crops don't use cover crops don't do this try this you know right it was yeah. like so overwhelming that I, that I was passionate off thought. I said, all right, I just got to learn this. And then, um, you know, finally it was a little bit of out of necessity. I wanted to start doing, um, about 20 acres a year, uh, you know, minimum. And I try to add a little bit more to that, but again, with, because of our terrain, it makes it difficult, um, sometimes to add things without really doing some, some heavy lifting, if you will, you know, literally sure. clearing timber out or, or things of that nature yeah, um, in order yeah. to add actual green spaces just because the, the terrain is so limited to get a tractor to some places. Um, wow. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it can be really rugged. It definitely has some pucker effect driving a tractor down a pipeline easement with erosion banks going yeah. in and stuff. It's like, yeah, I'm it's, sure. it's, uh, it can be an interesting ride, let's put it that way. Oh, but yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I love the, the ground and I know it like the back of my hand, but um, I started doing more and more, you know, planting twice a year and uh, sometimes frost seeding and, and doing all these things. I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, if I got to fertilize every time I'm doing these crops based on these different soil tests or what have you, uh, this is, I'm going to be spending $10,000 a year, mm-hmm. you know, and, and at that time, like, heck, I was, I think, still in college. Wow. So, and then the plant the, to try to till everything in and sound like this just isn't going to work. So yeah, I uh, just continued to get interested, you know, probably started with forums, then got on like Facebook and saw some different things. And, um, you know, you kind of sort through what you think is legit and who seems to be able to articulate really clearly and, right. and, and kind of come across as unbiased, but getting some, and there's so many guys out there that are just 
awesome. It, it just giving such great, unbiased, straight information. And I um, yep. found some of those on the old QDMA forums and some on Facebook. And uh, and then I just started reading every book that I possibly could um, and watching webinars. And it was just like a like a trickling, a trickling fact, man. I, I just, once I did that, I just couldn't stop. And I just absorbed over the last probably two years, uh, but last year and a half um, has been really intense of trying to fine tune and really dig, dig into understanding. Um, okay, I know what works, but why does it work? I guess the why behind everything. And that's yeah. kind of where my passion lies. And, um, I'd say probably once a day I'm reading something about soils, some fit form or fashion. So I'm, I definitely enjoy it. Wow. Very cool. Very cool background. And, and story sounds like you have uh, definitely spent some time on this <laughs> and yeah. a lot of hands-on yeah. experience, which is very valuable. So cool. Absolutely. Well, uh, kind of hitting off of that, I guess, you know, start when you, from when you first started planting food plots, um, I guess we can kind of go into uh, our first kind of series of questions that we're going to go cover in this podcast. Um, so what do you think is better, Al, if you kind of had where to, have two uh, different planting methods. Um, do you think it would be better to till your soil but plant a wide diversity, or uh, perhaps maybe no-till planting, but it would just be a monoculture? Yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, um, it depends on the goals, right? And, mm -hmm. and I, I'm probably going to answer some questions and be a little bit vague, and people are going to go, "Wow, that guy's just just dodging the question." But I do think it's important to understand the context in which we're we're measuring our success, right? Mm -hmm. So if we are measuring our success because we want strictly soil health, well, you know, or, or soil building, soil health is kind of a, an overused terminology anymore, right? And like, yeah. I don't even know if it's really that well defined. Um, I mean, we could, without going down too much of a rabbit hole, I mean, we could refer to Haney testing and, and CO2 bursts, which measures microbial life, right? And um, there's a, is it PFLA testing, I think, uh, which, you know, measures uh, essentially the bacterial and fungal populations of your soil um, and things like that based on like their, the different cell walls and things like that. Okay, yeah. Um, and you could, you could maybe draw a correlation there, like, okay, how healthy is your soil based on those parameters, right? Yeah. And things but then there's also this, this big one out there that we've used for decades and everybody's familiar whether you've ever farmed or not farmed. But if you grew up at anywhere in the Midwest, you've heard the term yield, you know, um, and that's something that's important. So if you're, you're farming, for example, um, peanuts, right, or, or, or potatoes or something um, yep. at a large scale and you're not able to do, you know, no-till and there has to be some type of disturbance, well, then in that situation, surely using cover crops to reduce erosion and, and hang on to some of your nitrogen and all of those things, right? Um, you know, common term there is scavenge nitrogen or scavenge nutrients. Um, so I might throw that around, which is essentially grabbing on to them, you know, yep, um, sure. so they don't leach out of your soil. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously in some situations, you just don't have a choice. Right. Um, one thing I would say, you know, is that diversity is king. If you are going to till, because say you have a tiller and you do a plot a year and you're like, I don't want to sell my tiller or an acre plot a year, excuse me, and mm -hmm. you're focusing on, on white-tailed deer, um, you just, maybe you just like tilling. You know, some of the things I would, would tell people to consider is 
well, maybe just don't sink the tiller in six, seven, eight inches. You know, mm -hmm. maybe just just till the top half inch. You yeah. know, if, if you just yep. want to be able to feel like you're making a nice little seabed. And I mean, are you still having some negative impacts from kills? Most likely, I mean, mm -hmm. you're still going to be adding oxygen to the soil, which um, you know we could go into uh, redox reactions, which is essentially when when things get oxidized, uh, like iron, it becomes less available because it goes through a redox reaction, which I'm not a chemist, um, so it's a little over my pay grade, if you will, but uh, <laughs> redox reactions in the soil are pretty pretty impressive, and, and um, over salt-based fertilizers can have that type of, um, like think of salt as causing rust, right? Okay. Um, yep. So it's causing oxidation to occur, which is making nutrients uh, less bioavailable because they're getting bound up, they're getting oxidized. Okay. Um, which is when you don't till and there's no um, oxidation occurring, you're creating a better environment for a reduction environment, which is making things more uh, bioavailable, essentially. That's like a really high-level version of that, but it's mm -hmm. something to be considered cognizant of. Yeah. The other thing yeah. is when you're killing, um, you know, you can be hurting your, your micro, mycorrhizal uh, fungal networks. Um, bacteria, I've heard, I think it was in a green cover seed webinar, I don't know if it was Dale Strickler or not, but I, I remember the gentleman speaking said, you know, bacteria will kind of ride the wave of a tiller or a disc, like a, almost like a, like a roller coaster is the analogy that they used. Okay. Fungal, net, fungal networks just simply can't handle it. They, they just simply break apart and, and they can't handle um, the tillage, which of course we know mycorrhizal networks are very important. Sure. So if you're stuck on using a tiller, which, hey, there's some areas where you just can't get away from it. Um, there some might be some areas where it's beneficial. Just understand that there's also some negatives to that. Yep. Um, I think a lot of this comes down to Colin as well as scale. Like if, if you're tilling a garden, um, although erosion might be a little bit of concern and nitrate leaching might be a slight concern, even though it's fairly small scale, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you care about that type of thing. But at the end of the day, it's so small that you probably can add enough amendments to that garden without breaking the bank you know you're not gonna yeah. have to take another mortgage out you know what i mean to, yep. to amend amend uh, a tenth of an acre an eighteenth of an acre or whatever it would be garden um whereas you might have to do that if you're you're talking a, a one or two or five or ten acre field um, and again that's where um soil testing is really important because if you understand that the cec of your soil um, if it's really low CEC sandy soil and you go in there and kill it continuously, um, it's going to be much harder to build soil. Sure. Plus, yeah. plain, plain and simple. I mean, it, it just, it doesn't have uh, the ability to really um, hold a lot of nutrients in the soil mm -hmm. already. It, it kind of acts like, uh, like trying to hold, catch water with a screen and you then are killing it. So any aggregation that did occur, um, you're essentially breaking it back up again, um, where somebody with a much heavier soil might be able to get away with that. So yeah. you hear in the ag world, there's a lot of variation, like they call it, they do strip tilling. Yep, things, I've heard of that. Which can kind of help to reduce and mitigate some of the risks of, of tilling the entire field. Like say you don't get that brain that you can't plan for, so it doesn't look like a, a dust bowl, right? You just kind yep. of can strip till. So you might be able to play with some of that in the in the um, deer world. Yeah. Uh, you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, a monoculture of no killing. Um, if you're saying a monoculture and like it's once a year type of thing, again, yep. we got to be cognizant. So what are we doing with that? Like if you just use soybeans, well, one, 
they're only going to live for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. So once they yellow and die, photosynthesis has stopped. So right. your soil is no longer getting fed. That feeds soil. A plant, you need a living plant and a living root and photosynthesis to be happening. That is the, that is the energy source for life. You yep. know, so without that, um, you're also going to have degradation occurring in some form or fashion. It's just, again, depending on the specifics of the person's environment, mm-hmm. it's just going to, it's just going to vary. So yeah. a lot so, of information there, but hopefully I answered your question in some way. No, for sure. Yeah. I just wanted to give the, the listeners kind of a, uh, two completely opposite sides and, um, give them a different perspective, um, on, on these two different subjects, uh, for which one is best for their situation. And by giving him kind of an extreme, you can kind of uh, fully capture what we're what we're kind of going towards. Where if you're going completely 360, you know, going just tilling but using a wide diversity versus no-till planting a monoculture, you can kind of see the two different aspects of it. Um, Absolutely. And like you were saying, if you can kind of almost do more of a, a limited till. Um, and, and use a wide diversity, especially, you know, in those, those more sandy soils with the uh, really low CEC numbers. And I think that would really benefit people. And then, you know, obviously, if you already have a no-till, I think, you know, if, if you're doing a monoculture, I think it, uh, like we've, you know, it's been all over the place, you know, diversity, diversity, diversity. If you can add in another crop, you know, to that, like a lot of farmers are starting to do using cover crops after that uh their main crop has has died off and try to get those other plants in there then i think that definitely would help you know if you're kind of in that monoculture uh stage uh that makes sense so oh absolutely absolutely i think you know and i think every situation is different and that's why i don't know how many message I, messages I get on, on Facebook and I, I'm like, I love it. You know, I love, love trying to help people and, and stuff. And, uh, you know, I had a, a really good friend of mine. I'll just share a quick story with you, but sure. he um, is down in uh, deep southeastern Ohio, really like one of my very best friends, um, chemical engineer, one of the smartest guys, if not the smartest guy I know. Wow. Um, I talked to him about an hour the other night. I'm like trying to further understand the nitrogen cycle, you know, and, and how it's represented in a lot of these um, whether it's an agricultural magazine or a cover crop magazine or webinar or something. I just, sometimes my brain just shuffles things together. I'm like, wait, which, which one's more available? You know, and, and I'm right. talking to him about it. And he's explaining to me like the chemical structure and why one's more available than the other. And I'm like super, super bright guy and, um, really good outdoorsman. And he has this, this, it's like a seven or 10 acre pasture, but it sat, um, for like 40 years and was just covered in invasives and, um, he's building a house there and he wanted to put in a big, uh, food plot here essentially. Mm-hmm. And for, I think two years now, I think it was two, he tried to no-till and was, it was kind of pathetic. Like he just did not get the growth he wanted. And he's like, I can barely even get a shovel into the ground. You know, and what he ended up doing is he's like, listen, I'm not one. He's like, I know I want to, I want to do no-till processes. Mm-hmm. But right. he's like, I got to get this right first. So, I mean, he actually went in and now this soil has not been turned for 40 years and it won't, won't be turned again for probably another 40. Yeah. But he had actually went in and um, 
or if he follows good no-till practices, probably ever need to be tilled again. But he right. went in and, and turned that soil over and broke it up and has sprayed it with biological inoculant um, sprays to uh, increase, you know, the breakdown with uh, microbes and things like that. Um, you know, and, and some of them will have metabolites in, um, and different things like that, humic acids and stuff like that, which will help hold nutrients um, in the soil as well. And uh, and then after the seed beds all fit and gets that initial good boost of growth, um, you know, he's going to be going to, to all no-till um, thereafter. So, hmm. I mean, that's, again, a really extreme example. Uh, I, I personally have not experienced that. Yeah. I do think that uh, I listened to John Kemp from AEA. Uh, he does yep. the Regenerative Agriculture podcast. And he talked about that on one of his webinars where he okay. was like, I've seen areas where could we fix it through only no till probably. But he's like, you know, the, he's consulting for agricultural producers. And he's like, we have to just break it up with steel one time. Yeah, because yep. it's just such a severe thing, and these guys are paying their mortgage with it. In, in his in John right. Kelly's uh, situation for at uh, AEA Consulting, so he's like, we go in there, we bring it up one time, we start adding you know, soil amendments and, and things of that nature that they, they happen to sell those as well, you know. And then they're using diverse cover crops and they're doing all these other things. So mm-hmm. just kind of a neat, neat little sidetrack story. Sorry to to, to go off. Oh no, no, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great, uh, that kind of um, correlates great with the next. Nice question. I think that was good to to give a little bit of uh, perspective on that because there's yeah there's some guys that have very uh, clay soil, high contact clay soil, and sometimes you know you just can't if you've got a no-till drill, maybe you know your soil is so compacted that your drill is not even um, getting the seed down to proper depth, and then if you, even if you do get the seed, if your soil is so compacted, you know depending on what you're planting, you really can't get a good uh, germination and, and good root system on that on that seed. You know, because mm-hmm. like you know about so healthy soil, there's got to be all these different pathways for you know your oxygen and, and your moisture and everything to uh, for your roots down there. So, yeah, for sure. So, kind of going to the next uh, question, relaying off of that, um, the best way to start building your soil in your food plot. So, you know, let's say guys, you know, there's obviously this changes with the region you're in. Um, I've got guys, you know, all the way up in, in Michigan that I've worked on their properties, um, all the way, you know, Northern Michigan, all the way down to Southern Michigan the soil is completely different, um, as well as, you know, down where you're at in Ohio. Um, so kind of getting started, that can, that can obviously change a lot based on your soil, but maybe some practices that you could hit on, um, you know, if you're thinking of getting started into, uh, uh building your soil. Uh, I mean, maybe not even, you know, if you don't have a no-till or something like that, maybe kind of relaying off that first question, doing a limited till, uh, using diversity, maybe some baseline um, things to look at in your soil test, and then maybe a good, um, a good cover crop mix that's, that's diverse. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that if, if I was to get a brand new piece of property I knew nothing about, you know, one of the first things I'd do is be pull a soil test and um, I'd be looking at a few different things. One, I mean, everybody likes to look at organic matter. I think it's, it's a, it's a nice baseline. Like let's look at it. You mm-hmm. know, there's some, you can Google, uh, there's some charts on there and I don't remember it off the top of my head. I should, because I've written the notes down, but like so much organic matter, each percentage is, is equal to um, so much nitrogen per acre and so much, 
uh, you know, MPMK per acre because that's going to become bioavailable throughout the year, blah, blah, blah. So it's nice to know, you know, yeah. some, of, some yep. of that. Um, it's nice to see your uh, calcium, magnesium, and potassium base saturations. I think that's something that's um, important, especially uh, let's just use Michigan, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so Michigan's most likely going, you know, in some areas, at least it's going to have a very low CEC, which is a Basically, it's, it's the structure of your soil as well as the ability for it to hold um, cations, so calcium, magnesium, so on and so forth. Yep. And uh, which is you know positively charged, uh, positively charged uh, ions. So what that means is if you have a very sandy soil, it's going to be the lower CEC. However, you might hear somebody in Michigan say, "But my soils, although they look sandy, they feel tight." And that can come into play with having really high magnesium levels, um, especially if it's if it's much higher than, uh, like, say, calcium or at least representative sample is. So if it's, let's say it's over 20% uh, base saturation magnesium, um, that can give a very tight feeling soil. Well, well, but your actual CBC is still low. So you might have this feeling of, like, well, I need to go in here and, and break up this compaction. But in actuality... You don't. You could probably make that soil feel a lot better just by increasing your calcium base saturation by using a liquid calcium product, or, or yep. depending on your pH, using a lime. But mm-hmm. I would make sure that it's a high calcium lime and uh, not a lime that has a high level of magnesium in there, because those are what's called an antagonistic relationship, which means as calcium goes up, magnesium will inversely go down. Okay. So, yep. They can't both stay on the soil colloid at the same represented percentages as they were previously to the amendment being applied. Okay. So what happens is as your calcium goes up, it's going to push your magnesium off of the soil colloid. And um, people sometimes think calcium increases pH. It, it doesn't. Um, it's actually the, the carbonate, um, with, which is in lime. So lime is calcium carbonate. Mm-hmm. And the carbonate pushes your hydrogen off of the soil colloid and they react, which then makes your soil less acidic. So that's just something to note that calcium is very important to cell wall structure of the plants. It, it, it's a very important amendment, mm-hmm. but if you just put on a pure calcium liquid application, it might very well work very, very well, Colin, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to have an impact on your, um, your pH. So the things okay. that I would be looking for, uh, just to recap that briefly, yeah. is uh, your, your CEC, of course, notate your organic matter, the base saturations of uh, calcium, magnesium, and potassium. Um, there are base saturation calculators out, out there on the web if your soil test doesn't give those to you. Um, those those would be, and then of course, pH. I would, I would look at pH too. Um, and I would probably look at them I would really look at CEC probably first and then and then everything some some list thereafter. Okay. Once you do that, then we can decide, okay, what are we working with here? So let's just stick with the Michigan example if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I have really sandy soils in Michigan um, and I'm not able to till I, I look at my soil test, let's say I need a little bit of lime and the calcium that's in there is going to get me in a good base saturation level. So my base saturations are fairly balanced. Um, now it comes down to just like, okay, method, like how, how do I want to plant this? Um, I've done a lot of acres every year, um, and continue to add, and I do broadcast method. Um, you know, a lot of people have seen, seen some of my, 
food plots or, or whatever. And they're like, oh, you have a nice no-till drill. I'm like, I wish, you know, I'm sure. sure they have one, but I don't actually have one yet. And it's uh, the one I was trying to get got delayed. So I'm not sure if I'll even have one this year. So oh. with that being, with that being said, um, I've done I did really, really great success with broadcasting, but of course, the mother nature helps there a lot as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the keys to building soil is you, you, you got to keep the ground covered, keep constant root living. Which that's where di- the diversity helps. Um, diversity also helps with different types of, you know, root exudates that are feeding different micro, uh, micro organisms within the soil. Um, you know, by not tilling, you're getting a mycorrhizal fungal network established, which again, by having different root structures, depths, uh, rates of exudation, et cetera, occurring, you're getting uh, a more robust microbial uh, networking system. So mm-hmm. that's the benefits of, of trying to have a super diverse and then also uh, no-tilled system going into you know sandy soils and keeping that constant root going so yeah. in, in an ideal world Colin, that's probably what i would go with um you know probably i don't know I, I mean i would i would most likely as well i know this isn't doesn't sound fun but if if i would say tell people don't be in a rush like if you're inheriting like let's say you and i got a new place right now like i don't think that i'm rushing to try to get something planted in spring this year you know, if it's okay. a brand new, I'm going to take soil pass. I'm going to try to try to make a really nice mix or, yep. or you know, source a really nice mix that's going to work for that um, in the fall. And I'm going to get, get prepared, mm-hmm. you know, and because sure. I just, unless it's, if it's super easy access or something, I think that you don't have to rush it. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, and just try to balance out that nice mix in, in the fall. And, um, you know, I, I think that's probably, you know, what I could, what I could say without going into more specifics. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, in the fall, you can even go into more like a, of an overwintering mix and then you can really have a really good kickstart, you know, if you have some, some winter rye and stuff like that in the spring, have a good jump start on all your weeds. Um, for the Absolutely, next year, buddy. I mean, ready. that's what I'm saying. It's like, I think that you're setting yourself up for such better success of just, yeah. yep. um, you know, you know, just again, let's say you do have really sandy soils and you need to put down some lime, you know, a soil test a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, put down 2000 pounds of lime. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you have a super sandy soil. Like, how do you know it's not just going to wash right out of there? You know, you have a CEC of two, like the, the recommendations on some tests, it's like, it'll tell me at a CEC of 15 mm-hmm. to put down 2000 pounds of lime. And it'll tell you at a CEC of two to put down 2000 pounds of lime. Yeah. So you get some yeah. guy who's super eager and he goes in there and puts out 2,000 pounds a lot with a CEC of two and it's in Lake Michigan before dinner time, <laughs> right, you know? Right, exactly. And yeah. I think that's where it's like, that's why just in the first year, just don't rush it. Take your yeah. test, evaluate yeah. them, talk to a few different folks, you know, and talk to their, their, talk to a few different people who are selling fertilizer or selling liquid foliars or whatever. Uh, talk to some different uh, ag guys, talk to some different, different habitat consultants you know what i mean and yep. and come up with a plan that you like best and then implement it you know sure, there are a lot of ways sure. to skin the cat and just i think uh, you know we're all in this together to, to help each other out i think that's one of the most important takeaways is um you know there's, there's a lot of ways to to do this and the most perfect ideal situation might not work for every single person so we just have to adapt and, and do the best we can with that exact environmental 
or in that exact situation for that person's environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So hitting off, uh, I just read one more question before we kind of keep moving on these uh, different topics. Um, so getting back to kind of your broadcasting method, I think this would be good to hear um, kind of what you do um, in broadcasting um, because there's obviously so many guys who want to go into no-till, but they don't have a drill and they just have a broadcaster. Um, so maybe some tips and stuff. And there's a couple things that I have learned. Um, and I know we were kind of chatting a couple of weeks ago about some different things. Um, but kind of, you know, if you've got, let's say you've got a really good cover crop of, you know, some, some, uh, rye or oats and, uh, they're just reaching that in thesis stage, they're seeding out and, you know, you want to get in and, and broadcast in them. And then, you know, you can use a, uh, a roller crimper and crimp them over. Um, I have noticed, I know I've had some personal experience with, um, the bigger seeds like soybeans or maybe in like some sorghum or anything that's in those, you know, bigger seeds. Um, they just really don't take that well. I have found, um, because you just don't have that seed to soil contact like you do with that, those smaller seeds. Um, and it just takes a lot more, um, a lot more moisture, constant moisture to get those germinated and get the uh, taproot started. So maybe kind of just some different tips that you learned broadcasting into cover crops for guys to kind of apply. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So um, kind of going right off what you just said there. So in the spring, if, if you're doing a spring summer mix, um, I think it, especially if you have larger seeds, um, you know, thatch is, is, is going to make or break you. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. and that can be what I would consider either a living thatch. Uh, so basically throw and mow. You know, I've seen okay. some guys grow some amazing, just back in, in kind of the soybean era, right? When everybody, all they were doing was growing a monoculture soybeans, but just literally broadcasting soybeans and then mowing off the area. But you just get enough thatch to, to cover it because I think when a seed's that large as well, um, the predation on it is so great. Okay. Um, and another thing that can be detrimental to soybeans or peas or any larger seeds like that yep. um, in high in high deer density areas um, you, you just simply can't, you, you just can't simply compete, you know, in, unless you're planning, you know, three, four, five, ten 10 acres. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to compete on, um, some of those, some of those real small areas, you know, mm -hmm. um, but all is not lost either. I, I just want to make sure that people realize like, although it might not look perfect if the if you get a root established and the plant it gets a chance to photosynthesize and it might not look you know like the cover of a magazine or anything but we're still achieving the goal of feeding microbes right and and, and yep. possibly you know some deer as well as they come by and nip it off and something like that you know i i always am a firm believer that um if if we want to kill kill a lot of deer and, and it, it really is, is big time in fall plantings um so in those spring plantings, my tip is do what, it, what you're comfortable with to create a thatch. So if you can only broadcast and then follow with a bush hog, do that. Okay. If you can uh, crimp it, do that. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe even broadcast first and then crimp it. You yeah. probably aren't going to crush the seeds enough because there's most likely enough uh, thatch cover. But obviously, if you don't have enough thatch cover and you're rolling up a steel, steel crimper right over a seed, uh, it might not be the best. But if you have a decent layer of thatch, well, seeds are pretty resilient, you know, sure. and uh, the, the weight's spread out. So that's another thing to consider. And then, of course, lastly, um, 
you know, some people think it's a dirty word, but we're going to talk about it at least a little bit is, is uh, herbicide burndown. Mm-hmm. There's a, you know, absolutely a very effective uh, way to no-till broadcast planting is, uh, is I like to, personally, I like to spray and I like to spray everything now and then go back, you know, maybe have some lunch, let that spray dry and then go in and seed. Um, I had a, a friend last year that did some testing with glyphosate and um, some people got really upset. They're like, there's no way that's true. But, you know, surely enough, I mean, I, I watched his test and he's, he's a good friend of mine. And um, the seed that got sprayed directly with the, the glyphosate did not germinate nearly as well um, as the seed that, that had not been uh, sprayed. And hmm, then he did one with like a little bit of a thatch covering and, and that seed did, did fairly well. So, okay. um, you know, I, I want to, give myself the best odds as possible. Sure. Uh, so I personally, when I do my fall um, crops, I do try to uh, spray. So I spray about once every 12 to 13 months. I try to re- reduce my herbicide applications, mm-hmm. uh, mostly just because of cost. Quite honestly, I'm not somebody who thinks like, oh, it's, it's the devil or anything along those lines. Um, I think it should be handled with, with caution, just like anything else. Um, yep. But uh, I do about once every 13, 12 to 13 months, just depending on my, my schedule. Okay. Um, and then in the spring and summer, um, <clears throat> depending on what, what I'm putting in, I normally will seed and then uh, just bush hog, bush hog, uh, it, uh, you know, whatever's in that field, bush okay. hog it right off. So and, now have uh, you, no, sorry not to interrupt, but no, I just wanted to uh, quickly go over it. Now with, as far as mowing, I, you know, I've, I've had guys ask me different questions on, on, um, terminating cover crops and you know what's best uh, where what's works works best and uh, i've had some questions about mowing and i really don't have much personal experience with that i I actually built a a roller crimper uh i believe in 2020 and so i kind of started right off into you know using a roller crimper and and, um although i you know at the time i really didn't know what i was doing and now i've learned a lot since then but um but that's interesting that you you've uh used mowing as a technique and i was just curious to you know for guys who maybe don't have a roller crimper or something but they still want to do something you know to improve um and start getting in the no-till how has that worked for you and maybe what are some um some good and some bad to that well i think the only bad thing um with possibly with mowing is, is depending on the type of mower you have like if you have a standard bush hog you can kind of get that windrow effect, mm-hmm. you know, where, where you, you could have too much thatch in, in one area, yep. um, you know, whereas like a flail mower um, might give you more of an even distribution of, of the thatch. Um, some of the other negatives you're going to hear about mowing is that, well, you don't terminate it. You just cut it. Okay. Yeah, I would care more about that if I was trying to worry about my yield. But if I'm just worrying about deer, and I'm worrying about soil health, do I really care if that rye grain that I mowed off sprouts a little bit more and photosynthesizes a little bit more before, you know, for the next couple months before I spray everything off and, and, and plant again? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just, I, okay. that's never been a real concern for me. Okay. People like, oh, well, well, you know, your clover might sprout back a little bit. It's like, cool. <laughs> you know, right. like, that's 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 cool you know right. i'm gonna have diversity in between it and, yeah yeah um you know i use a term a lot called calling it a, a wildlife pasture versus just a food plot because i think this food plot is 
for all of us, you know, we've just seen the magazine covers and the outdoor channel and all of these things. And it's just this picture perfect, uh, agricultural type looking field almost. Mm-hmm. And if we can get ourselves to understand that it can look like a green mess, you know, <laughs> you can have a soybean plant and then, uh, right next to it, have a, a five foot tall sunflower growing up and next to that have a, uh, hairy vetch climbing it and, you know, have some clover on the ground and some rye, rye grain that you cut that's decomposing and some rye grain that's re-sprouting. Like, sure. that's okay. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's a lot of diversity. And yep. um, it, that, that's that's actually a great thing for, for soil health. And, um, it's just a little bit of, a, you know, it's just, it's not a huge change, just a slight change in, in, uh, in perception. But yeah, Colin, that's worked really well for me. And, okay. Um, about two years ago, I did not, I was really busy and it might've been three years ago now. And I went in and just did, uh, I think it was spring oats, clover and sunflowers. Okay. That was it. And I broadcasted it right into like, I don't know, waist high fall crop that had like rye grain and wheat and all this other stuff. And I broadcasted it right into there. And sure enough, I came back and, yeah, I had spring oats coming up. I had sunflower. Did I have a perfect stand? No. And of course, you know, sunflowers got nipped off pretty quickly because um, I didn't have a ton of them. You know, I should have increased the, the rate at which they were they were put into that since I was only going with like two two species in that that year. But sure, uh, it it worked. But again, yeah. rain was timely and that helped. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. And I think that's another thing too. Um, that's that's really critical, you know. If you're thinking about, you know, whether you're you're terminating it with a roller crimper or you're gonna, you know, mow it, um, you've gotta, you know, really rely on that rain. And, and if you can, you know, try to catch it, you know, right, uh, planting. Can I, can I right uh, add rain. something to to your comment there? Yeah, Mike? no, for sure. You know, the roller crimper thing. There's been a lot of conversations I've seen, and I've even had it myself where people go. Uh, Oh my gosh, you know, I, I want to have diverse cover crop mixes, but, um, you know, I'm never going to be able to roll a crimp all that clover. Like, it's not all going to die. Yeah. You know, in the, the, and it's like, again, just going off the thing, it's like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Unless you're worried literally about bushels per acre because you're growing a crop for yield, which has a totally different discussion. I'd be happy to have it sometime, but like, right. To me, if we're just doing this wildlife pasture ideology, like who cares if if a little bit of crimson clover or medium red clover or you know ladino clover pops up after the crimper, even oh, if you yeah. kill fifty percent, yeah, it's like yep. you're you're allowing some of it to start the decomposition process, and you're having new crops start photosynthesizing and feeding the microbes again, and mm-hmm. there goes the cycle. Right. So yeah. just something to, to think about, like it doesn't have to be perfect, but uh, even where some guys are, are crimping, I know um, on the ag side, guys are following with, following with a quart of uh, one quart per acre of glyphosate, okay. you know, just, just to give that additional burn down. Um, but again, that's more on the ag side. If they're, you know, then they're trying to run corn behind that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to terminate say a, a winter ride uh, cover crop or something of that nature. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. I think that's, that was a great, uh, side note too, because I think a lot of us get, including myself, we get so caught up in, 
you know, it wanted to look really good. You know, you see all these food plots online and everything looks, you know, perfect. And, you know, but, but really you have to boil it down to what's your goal and, and what do you, you, do you want really good soil or do you want it to look perfect? You know, and again, if you're having a diversity in, in what you're planting, it's not only feeding um, your soil, but obviously, you know, as a, a land, land manager myself and, and you as a land manager, um, deer let's love diversity the more diversity you can put in your in your in your food plot and uh, the better and more more attractive it's going to be so I definitely uh, agree with that and I like that side note so thanks for hitting yeah, on absolutely. that absolutely yeah so uh, another thing I wanted to kind of discuss was obviously we know what these these fertilizer and herbicide costs going through the roof this year uh, there's I've been seeing a lot of different comments and questions on different forums of mine on Facebook and, uh, you know, what guys are going to do, you know, with, with food plot uh, costs this year. I know that it's going to be very costly for guys to put in a lot of food plots. And um, so I've heard some talk about, you know, some guys, oh, I, you know, I can get compost or um, cow manure and stuff like that. Um, do, you, do you think it's worth the extra hassle of maybe trying to truck some in or uh, kind of trying to go that route to build your soil? What's your kind of perspective or maybe some experience you've had with that yeah it's it's a good question i don't i mean it depends on everybody's situation right like i don't sure. have that much time um to to do that and i think you also have to understand that like cow manure or um any type of manure has to go through you know breakdown right mm -hmm. it has to have biology work on it to decompose it for like, let's just talk about nitrogen for, for a second. Sure. Um, in order for nitrogen to be available, that's in the cow manure, whether it's in organic forms of nitrogen or uh, inorganic forms, it has to go through you know, the breakdown um, phase in order for it to be available. Now, um, let's say that there is some nitrate already in there um, in the cow manure, which I'm sure that there would be. I remember reading a study one time that they analyzed or it was talking about uh, the levels of organic uh, nitrogen and inorganic nitrogens and, and think all this uh, it was really interesting but uh, when you apply it is also important right because you can hear like people say oh, if you apply uh, manures at the wrong time you can burn the crops mm -hmm. you know yeah uh, if you ever heard that so i think but then if, if you apply it too early and you have a low CEC soil and bi biology is breaking this down into, say, nitrate form, um, and there's no plants that are living there to then absorb that nitrate form, what's going to be there to hold it in the soil? So you might be throwing stuff on there. It would just be like applying fertilizer at the wrong time. Okay. Um, yep. So that's just something to be cognizant of. Sure. Know, just if yep. you're going to apply anything that needs biology to break it down, be it manure, um, you know, you you want to have a plant growing, and you also want to be a little bit smart on how you're applying it. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, I would probably I would probably still use fertilizer um, if I wanted to go that route. You know, I personally haven't fertilized in like six years. Um, I focus on um, different uh, routes, but if I really wanted to do fertilizer, I'd either probably look at a foliar application. Um, I think you can and do that fairly um, 
cost effectively and or if I wanted to to do a granular uh, fertilizer I would just do less and just take okay. notes of, of how your your crop's going to grow okay uh, yep. one of the things we talked about earlier is you know guys starting off and I probably skipped over this and I apologize but it's like if you guys start off, I think one of the most complicated things is you get on the internet and look, and it's like the only way to do this is, is no-till drill, highly diverse, and and you know it just seems like such a mountain to climb. Yeah, and, and no inputs. Well, now because of the economy and the way things are going, it's almost forcing some people to maybe not go no inputs, but to reduce inputs. Absolutely. But I think that's kind of a natural yep. good transition, anyways. Like if you're yep. interested in the things that we're talking about. Like maybe just say, you know what, instead of a hundred pounds end per acre that I normally follow on that soil test, let's just do 50 this year and let's just see what happens. Yep. You know, um, again, I, I, I probably am not the best to talk about the, the manures and things because I just haven't done enough research into it. I know a lot of farmers do do it. I think most of the time they're putting them, putting it on, um, in the fall. And just letting biology work in so that that by by next spring it's 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 available you know yeah um, in the yep. soil uh, because it is going to take time to break down so if you're going to be doing uh, manure applications i would probably do, do some research be it chicken manure or cow manure or pig manure and just say you know in my area in northern michigan when's the best time to apply x type of manure and then and then kind of see what they they recommend because I'm sure there's variability on breakdown of the climate and soil types and obviously microbial life in the soil, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that gives guys a little, um, you know, enough to kind of um, uh, steer them in the right direction. You know, if they're thinking about going that route. Um, and that's that's another thing I didn't really know is, is the the, uh, the timing of when you're putting on, you know, with burning up crops. You might get some guys that, oh, yeah, you know, they get access to a bunch of it. And, you know, maybe they've already got something planted and they just go on, you know, and, and lay on a bunch of, uh, a bunch of manure and they might end up burning up a lot of their plot. Um, so yeah, maybe a, that's a good, a good, uh, thing to cover for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's even, um, uh, I, I think that there's some, something to do with the way that it, I remember reading this just a couple months ago, it's like the way in which it breaks down. I think it can actually reduce your soil pH as well. Um, so obviously, if you're putting it on sparingly, it, it might be okay. And, and there's other factors, right? Again, CEC of your soil, soil makeup, mm-hmm. um, all of these different things. But if you're just dumping on a bunch of manure because you got it for free, you think this is going to be great. Yeah. Um, you know, you might want to be careful. Um, one other thing I would I would say too is be careful where you're getting the manure. Um, okay. One thing I do feel very confident about in this specific part of the conversation is, you know. Like what? What was? What were those animals fed? Um, what type of hay? Like, because you don't want to be spreading manure all over. You know, hay, was the manure composted or not? Yep. You know, like a good compost pile should get hot enough to where it makes the seeds no longer, uh, you know, viable. Right. Okay. Like if it wasn't composted and it just it's fresh out of the animal when you right. throw it on your field and they were eating seriously less then all of a sudden you got uh, a really nasty non-native invasive growing all over your food plot. Yeah. You might have wish you just bought some triple 13 right <laughs> yeah absolutely so, uh, and i've heard of that before to look into and again i'm not an expert on manure bike i'm not an expert on anything called but yeah. definitely not the manure topic and i just think that it's something that uh, should at least give somebody a starting point of some things to look up and google like to think about yeah no for sure i think that's great to um 
that you hit on that, that temperature thing, because I, I actually didn't know that. And I've heard of different guys um, and, and myself, we, we, I, I grew up on a small uh, horse farm. And so I, I would basically, you know, on some of my food pots, I figured, well, you know, manure is supposed to be good. Right. So, you know, I would go put it on my food pots and I didn't really know what I was doing, whether it was hurting my soil or not. Um, and it was, it was fairly composted. It was, it was all the way down to, you know, very rich, you know, black dirt at that point. So, yeah. and uh, it seemed like it made a difference. You know, I, I didn't really, you know, measure one side of the food plot to the other, you know, if it, whether I, I composted one side and didn't, um, you know, maybe did, uh, it'd be cool to kind of do some trials on some different composts and really kind of see, you know, what works, what doesn't, if it makes that much of a difference uh, and kind of how fast you could build your soil, you know, if you go about doing it right. Um, oh, absolutely. And the other thing, Colin, like we talked about earlier is it's scale. Yeah. You know, and, yep. I, and I tell people that all the time, like, hey, you want to do compost on your garden? Heck yeah. Right. Because it's, yep. it's so, I mean, if you have a little, you know, a little tractor with a front end loader and you have a, a you know, decent sized garden, you can order enough compost for, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks and probably yeah. put two inches of compost across your whole garden. Yeah. You right. Know? Like, right. that's not going to, break the bank but if you try to do it on an acre or two acres or 10 acres that's again where where scale really uh, comes in but i think guys should look i mean it's i just talked to uh a farmer uh, out of the southeastern part of the united states so a good buddy of mine caleb he's on a lot of different forums and just a super guy super knowledgeable and uh, he's been like a mentor to me when i have questions about various things about soil health and, um you know we, we were talking about how you know, a lot of these companies who have made products for the last hundred years for farming um, are, are looking really heavily in the biological uh, inoculants for soil. And okay. you know, what, what, yeah. can we, what can we add to the soil to help seeds be, you know, have higher germination rates or grow mm -hmm. faster, bigger roots, et cetera. Yeah, um, I know that's something that. Know, um... So there's quite a few of those out there now. And I think that's it, it's. It might be worth, if you have a few extra bucks, it might be worth looking into or at least making a phone call to some of those guys and have that discussion. Yeah, for sure. I know that's one thing. Um, I know you kind of follow Green Cover a little bit. Uh, I know that's one thing that they have uh, they have included. I know I've planted uh, several of their mixes, and each one comes with a, um, um, a bio-inoculant. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that I know helps tremendously with germination and starting that mycorrhizal you know fungi um you know in the soil as that plant starts to grow starting that, starting that bacteria off right so for sure um so yeah kind of moving on uh, to one of our last last questions i kind of wanted to bounce off of you uh so we kind of have gone over a lot of different things on getting started no-till um reading your soil test um you know compost um some different cover crops and stuff like that um so kind of tying that all together you know you've got your soil test you, you know what your soil is and you kind of want to get started you know kind of how you're going to you're going to terminate it or whatever you know maybe you're going to mow it um i guess let's talk a little bit about uh balancing your carbon to nitrogen ratios in cover crop mixes and maybe like a good starter mix um for let's say as an example a uh, a more sandy soil you know, a guy lives up north. Um, yeah. You know, I've got a lot of guys that live up north and want to build their soil. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, carbon to nitrogen ratios, I think, are it's something that's talked about a lot. And I, I 
at least for me, I'm sure there's a lot of guys out there like it's so easy to comprehend, but for me, it's taken a lot of time to, to really comprehend it. But I think the best way that I can explain it is if you've ever seen like a monoculture of clover, right? Yep. And if you've ever burned it down with Roundup, right? You would come back in two weeks and what would you envision that field to look like? Most guys are going to say it's, it's probably going to be like bare dirt. Right? Okay, There's yep. not going to be a lot of dead clover thatch. Well, where did it go? It didn't burn burn up. It has a very low carbon to nitrogen ratio, that particular plant, which means it's going to be ate faster by microbes, right? So sure. the microbes have a microbial diet that they need to eat, yep. uh, you know, of so many uh, car- parts carbon to nitrogen. So when you have a plant that's very low carbon and nitrogen, just to give you a visualization there, um, you can understand that like, oh yeah, that's right. Like if I, I sprayed that clover plot, you know, and I came back and there was just like dirt, there hardly was any clover left. Yeah. Well, yep. the, the opposite of that would be a, uh, let's say kind of like a grain crop or even a heavy grass like corn. Yep. Um, you know, farmers harvest corn and it's got a heavy big heavy thick stalk or, or rye grain right and you, sure. you roll over roll over rye grain or spray rye grain or mow rye grain let's do the same example so you have a monoculture of any of those crops i just mentioned uh you spray it off and you come back in a week you'd expect to see a thick thatch of, of that particular crop still there mm-hmm. uh, if you came back in two weeks you'd expect to have a a pretty thick thatch of that particular crop still there. Uh, hell, you come back in a month and you might still expect that thatch to be there. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so that's the example of a crop that has a very high part carbon to nitrogen ratio. Sure. So where the balance comes in is wanting to, and it, and it can vary a little bit by soil types, and it can also vary a little bit by following um, crops, right? You know, if you if you have one crop in the spring, you want to follow it with uh with a lighter one next in the, in the fall or in farming operations, right? Not only is a corn on being, you know, being on corn on being rotation, very useful. Um, it makes sense one from a legume standpoint, right? Follow it. And then the corn following mm-hmm. um, yep. to take, take the nitrogen, but then also from a carbon to nitrogen ratio, when you think about it, um, you know, the leftover parts of the beans is it's just basically low carbon to nitrogen stubble. Um, and then you're following it with a, corn the following year um, which is a much higher carbon nitrogen uh cycle so yep. uh, if that was all new killed it would be uh you you would be able to visualize that a little bit more a lot of operations obviously you're tilling in the corn stalks but sure. um, you'd be able to visualize that a little bit more so where that balance comes in is you don't want to have too much carbon because you'll have if, if a mix is too high in carbon items like just singular rye grain right it's just rye grain after rye grain after rye grain, you're letting it go all year or whatnot, you can actually have nitrogen tie-up in your soil. Okay. Um, and you're not going to be able to break it down fast enough. You know, the microbes, are just, they're just not going to be able to break it down. Likewise, um, if you have too low of uh, carbon and nitrogen ratio, like the clover example, well, now you're feeding these microbes, right? And they're eating this rapidly. And the mm-hmm. populations are growing because they're all oh, this is great you know we're eating this up well, right. then what happens colin well they need carbon in order to survive 
So you have this robust population, but where are they going to get the carbon source from? Okay. Hum- you're going to get the carbon source from, from your, your hummus, which is your organic matter. Mm-hmm. Or other microbes that are dying off, but you don't want to just have a bunch of dying off microbes either. So what I suggest people to do to help to get a little bit better understanding of carbon nitrogen ratios is read up on some of the compost uh, literature that's out there that explains carbon nitrogen ratios. And what it'll tell you is if you have too much high carbon items in your compost pile, your compost pile will take forever to break down, right? Yep. Well, eventually, if, if you have that on a field, let's draw that parallel, mm-hmm. you won't be able to plant into it. It just you, you won't have any sunlight getting to the, to the, to the uh, where the seed needs to be. You just have okay. a thick mat. Yep. Uh, it's kind of an extreme of a cover crop. It's kind of, a, I would kind of look at it as, you know, a, a, a good thatch is, is great, but too much of, of a good thing, I guess it's bad, and too much thatch. Yeah. Really, exactly. Not let you get so Exactly. So that's the beauty of it, man. It's just it's mm-hmm. just trying to find that that good balance of diversity and and um, realize with, with the with the compost thing. I think most of the time, what I will say is, if you have too much, um, basically low low carbon um, to nitrogen products, it'll break down too fast, and that's when your compost pile will start to stink. Right. Okay. So. Yep. Um, so that's why that it's so important to have that balance. Um, and that's because it starts to stink because you have high uh, bacterial populations in mm-hmm. there. And I think what causes this thing is they actually start to die off. But I could be wrong on that piece. But I, I think my memory serves me correctly. But I could be wrong on that. So so what's a good mix? Like what's a good starting mix? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a, in a sandy soil. Now, in a sandy soil, you, you kind of want some thatch because you're already going to be – I mean, you want thatch in every soil, right? But I mean, in sure. a sandy soil – um, I don't think you can go wrong. I'm just going to talk fall for, for right now. But, yeah. um, you know, rye grain, um, I, I like to be as diverse as possible, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I, I like, you know, rye grain, um, oats. I would add a brassica. I'd put in maybe a radish in there. Um, if you, you want to add turnip as well, I think that's nice. And then I absolutely would add a clover or two. Okay. I think that's a very nice, simple uh, mix. Now, as you get more involved and, and you're you're wanting to learn even more about all of this and you're wanting to really unleash you know the potential of your soil and, and things, sure, there's there's better mixes. I'm sure that we could go down and mm-hmm. get as diverse as possible. But yeah, I think that is to me, a mix like that, you can get a ton of tonnage, a ton of tonnage. That's a good word usage there, but you, know, you can get a lot a lot of tonnage out of it. You can get uh, a crop that's growing essentially all year i mean that that literally will, will grow from 12 months out of the year at least the rye grain will like the mm-hmm. oats will die out you'll get uh nice uh, brassicas in there which is nice because you're getting uh, tuber uh production you get in deep tap roots yep. you know, and then you're having a, a legume which is you know balancing out some of those um higher carbon ida- items and you're also going to have that nice spring green up as you talked about earlier you know, you get yep. you get uh, April, May coming around, depending on what part of the country you're in, and all of a sudden you have this nice spring green up coming. Sure, in. absolutely. So, um, I think that's just uh, you know, kind of how I would uh, how I meant that. Yeah, no, that's great. That gives uh, gives listeners uh, uh, definitely something to kind of grab a hold of, and you know, if they're if they're thinking about getting started in in a no-to, it's a great mix that uh, you can either you know go to a local grain elevator and find the stuff yourself or um, there's many different uh, great seed companies that can 
that have similar mixes or you can you can go on and change um even i know we've talked about uh green cover seeds they've got a great um their smart mix calculator you can go on there a lot of great stuff on there with you can plug in different uh seed species and it'll show you all kinds of different great information so just a couple different uh different things so uh to kind of wrap up i want to ask this might be a hard question for you because i know you love uh diversity in, in food plots but i want to ask what if you had to pick one uh food plot um uh plant to uh to put in your food plot what would that be oh it has to be rye grain rye grain okay yeah yeah rye grain is a workhorse i mean it has great fibrous root system uh it grows down to very low temperatures yeah uh, deer will eat the snot out of it oh yeah uh, it'll, sure. it'll spring it'll spring back in the in the uh, early days of spring you know it just springs to life um and and i just I, it, it just is a great uh, it's just a great crop i absolutely uh i just don't think i will have a fall where i don't plant something with uh with rye grain in my mix sure sure yeah no that's that's great rye is uh i've definitely had some great success with rye and and i will uh probably keep including it in most all the mixes that I, uh, that I continue to plant. So definitely a great crop all around. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, cool. buddy. I agree. Awesome. Well, Al, I really appreciate you coming on here. I really enjoyed this and uh, I hope the listeners did too. And uh, maybe I'll have you on in the future and we can dive into uh, some more different topics and uh, dive deeper and, there's always more uh, information research coming out, as I'm sure you know. So it's uh, there's just never, never enough time to uh, discuss all these different things. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. It, it really was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. It was good to chat with you. I know we've been buddies on uh, Facebook for a while, and it was good, good to chat with you. I really enjoyed this, and hopefully, I, I left people with you know something uh, that's worthwhile. Uh, I would like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to just mention two two areas where people can kind of follow me and then i also like to give a couple points of reference for people who are look interested in more information because i'd like to give credit um to where i think credit's due is that okay with you absolutely go ahead yeah so i, I do have a facebook group called build better soil um i try to share a lot of research that maybe some guys in the in just the deer world uh might not find that interesting um so that's a really it's a small small group but uh, it is a good group where i share some information there um, I also have a, uh, an Instagram, uh, at build better soil. Um, I have a, a YouTube, uh, channel at, uh, a journey to, uh, better timber and, uh, soil where it's much of the same, uh, same thing that I share on my Instagram, basically short videos, be it around gardening and, and or timber management or things that I do on the farm. But, um, those are three areas. Um, and then just real quick, some areas I'd like to give some shout outs to would be, uh, Neil Kinsey, Hands-On Agronomy, is an absolute fantastic book. I think folks should uh, should, should read it if they're interested in this. Okay. Uh, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. Yep. Uh, a Soil Owner's Manual by John Sticka. Uh, absolutely wonderful book. Um, if you're not into reading, I suggest YouTubing uh, Ray Archuleta, uh, watching some of his video uh, uh, cover crops and some of the tests that he's done. Um, showing no-till versus tilled soils versus monoculture no-tilled soils and, and, and so on and so forth and showing water infiltration tests and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Really, really interesting. Um, Ray Archuleta, absolutely brilliant soil scientist. Um, 
obviously Green Cover Seed, um, Dr. Rachel Woods, the webinars by Green Cover Seed with Dr. Christine Jones, uh, the Phosphorus Paradox, and, and so many others. I mean, I, I just could keep going on. Um, and uh, the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast with John Kemp is uh, really, really fantastic stuff. Yeah, so um, I've learned a lot. He has a there. blog you can follow as well. So those are, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out. I mean, there's so many great, great guys and, and gals out there that just do really, really amazing work. So uh, I just always like to, when I when I have an opportunity to talk about this stuff, I think it would be uh, remiss to me not to mention those people because I just think that they deserve all the credit and then some. And I just hope that they can help somebody else out like they've helped me to learn more about this passion. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, yes, everyone, please go follow uh, the pages that he listed. Uh, I follow all of them and uh, you definitely do a great job of running those and putting out a lot of different information that maybe people just don't see um, normally online or on these different different groups. So definitely go check those out. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this. I really appreciate uh, you coming on here. And Absolutely. Thanks so much, Kyle. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks Thank for you. Me. Yep. Well, guys, thanks a lot for tuning into this podcast. I really hope everyone learned something from this. I know I did. I really enjoyed uh, sitting down and, and talking to Al James about all these different things and really uh, breaking into his knowledge and uh, firsthand experience on his farm in Ohio, in Ohio. Hope you guys will tune in. I've got some exciting uh, guests coming up uh, in future podcasts. So please be checking back in here and I will catch you in the next episode.